This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Dan Weiss, President of Haverford College and incoming President of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. During his tenure at Haverford, Dan focused on centralizing the liberal arts education around deep moral and ethical dimensions. He emphasized strengthening the foundations of physical and technological infrastructure, as well as building up the school's commitments to sustainability, diversity, and interdisciplinary teaching and scholarship. His turn at the helm of the Metropolitan Museum of Art marks not only a new phase for the museum, but also Dan's continuation of, in his own words, his devotion to the nexus between administrative leadership and an interest in arts and culture. He will succeed Emily Kernan Rafferty, who held the post for 10 years, and will take over direct leadership responsibility for all day-to-day operations while overseeing 1,500 employees, an operating budget of more than $300 million, and an endowment of approximately $3 billion. Just last year, the museum hosted 6.2 million visitors to both its main building and the cloisters, the museum branch devoted to the art and architecture of medieval Europe, and enjoys more than 40 million visits to its website. Dan's background blending art history, academia, and business places him at a unique position to lead one of the world's largest and finest art museums. He has written or edited five books and multiple articles on the art of the Middle Ages, American higher education, and World War II. His research has been supported via grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Harvard University, Yale University, uh, the Samuel H. Kress Foundation, and the Foundation of the Italian Center for Medieval Studies. Dan earned his BA with a double major in art history and psychology from George Washington University in 1979. He earned both his MA and PhD in art history at Johns Hopkins and joined the faculty there in 1993. He received his MBA from the Yale School of Management in 1985 and was a consultant with Booz Allen and Hamilton from 1985 to 89. In 1994, Dan won the Van Cortlandt Elliott Prize, an award given annually by the Medieval Academy of America for a first article in the field of medieval studies judged to be of outstanding quality and was one of the first art historians to receive the award. He also received three awards for teaching excellence as a member of the Johns Hopkins faculty and was awarded the Aaron O. Huff People's Choice Award at Lafayette College, where he was president and professor of art history. While at Lafayette, he was given the Community Partner Award from the Greater Lehigh Valley Chamber of Commerce, as well as the Community Service Award from the Two Rivers Area Chamber of Commerce. In 2013, when Dan became president of Haverford College, the Posse Foundation awarded him its Star Award for contributions to higher education. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Dan, are there experiences from your early childhood that you feel significantly influenced your perspective or world vision and your place within that vision? Well, there are several that come to mind, but perhaps the most important is that when I was a a young boy, my father was an amateur artist, and I was a great admirer of his paintings. Uh, he He lived abroad when I was young. My parents were divorced when I was very young. And I used to go visit him, and he had paintings on the walls of his apartments that he had done. They were in an Impressionist style, following a kind of 19th century aesthetic. 
And I really loved them, and I always admired them. And then later in high school, I had an opportunity to take a class on the humanities, which allowed us to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, among other places. And I got to see some of these things. So I would say those were determining influences early on in my life. And how did your interest in art history first come about? Well, I think it really began with an interest in art as my father's work led me to. I saw what he was doing and, and I was uh, interested in that. And I guess I was always attuned to visual things, although I can't really say that I thought of myself as interested in art until in college I took a class in art history, a subject about which I didn't think I knew anything. But I quite resonated with, this, with the material and found that I was very interested in it, and then reflected back on, on an interest in images that I had had for quite a long time, stemming back to the time of my father's painting. Did that interest in images extend to your wanting to paint and create art yourself? Uh, no, quite interestingly, even though, as I said, my father was, I think, a very good amateur painter, I had no interest or skill in actually producing art, and uh, from early on, probably from summer camp exercises and thereafter, it was clear to me I just didn't have any sense for it or interest. But really my interest in images and in the history of art is based primarily on an interest in the history of culture and in history more generally, the ways in which art can help us to understand other societies, other times, and other places. And did that inform your desire to learn about European art in the Middle Ages during the time of the Crusades, just from a historical perspective? It did. I was uh, initially, I would say, not very drawn visually to the material that I ultimately studied, that is, to medieval art. It wasn't my first love, but I had a teacher in college who I found very inspiring and extraordinarily interesting intellectually. So he brought me into his world, and as I learned more about this material, it opened up to me in very interesting ways. And I think what I found most intriguing about it was that on the one hand, medieval imagery seems to be a, a kind of monotonously the same. There are so many religious images of the same narratives that we've seen again and again. But that as one understands how to ask different questions and look at the material in new and probing ways, it, it, it becomes much more rich and interesting and multivalent in ways that I hadn't anticipated. That intrigued me a great deal. And isn't it quite something, uh, Dan, that uh, we have inspiring professors uh, either in college, uh, post-grad, or even in high school uh, who can lead us in one direction and, and uh, altogether uh, make us explore avenues that we would never otherwise pursue? Uh, it is indeed. I, I have spent the last 25 years of my life in higher education, and I really think I was drawn to it because I saw and experienced firsthand the power of that kind of, of mentoring that can take place in a college or high school setting. For me, it was determining. I was, I suppose, ready at that time for intellectual experiences that would be new, but there was something about the, the way in which this faculty member engaged passionately in his own work and in his own teaching and that inspired me to want to learn what he was interested in learning and to be like him. He was so articulate, he was so compelling that, that uh, I was, I think, transformed by the experience and as an educator for the next chapter in my life, I was really interested in fostering that kind of experience for others, both as a teacher myself and as an administrator. It's a very powerful thing. And in that next chapter of your life and your love of art history, you worked as an assistant professor of art history at Johns Hopkins. 
uh, later rising to associate then full professor, chair of the history of art department, uh, dean of the faculty, and then dean of the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences, a title you held from 2002 to 2005. What were some of the major changes you noticed during this time spent at Johns Hopkins uh, from the perspective of professor and leader uh, between your own undergraduate career and those of students whom you taught or mentored? Well, I was very much drawn to the work for the reasons that I mentioned, that there's something really remarkably powerful and transformational in engaging in, in intellectual exploration around a subject you're passionate about with students who are interested in learning with you. So that's what drew me into the enterprise. When I, I was at Johns Hopkins, I, I think my own experience was very reinforcing of those values. I was among a community of scholars that took very seriously the importance of scholarly productivity, of discovery as part of the professorial life. And so I was, I was inspired by my colleagues and had a chance to do a lot of scholarship early on, which I appreciated. But I think what developed over the time of my, my faculty role and as a dean was greater interest and commitment to the undergraduate experience, helping undergraduates at Johns Hopkins to engage substantively in that kind of work. Hopkins had been a traditionally a research university with a greater interest in scholarship and graduate education than in undergraduates. And I'm very proud of the work we did when I was there in elevating the importance of undergraduate education. And Hopkins has continued that uh, since that time. And did that extend beyond the art history department? Yes, it did. So as an art, I was the undergraduate advisor in the history of art department throughout my time as a professor and department head there because I was committed to that. Then when I became dean, we had an opportunity to raise the level of those concerns across the school. And I did this in partnership with the president at the time, Bill Brody, who was also very committed to this. So we were able to make quite a lot of progress in the School of Arts and Sciences in strengthening programs for undergraduates that were unique and building on the, the strengths of Johns Hopkins as a research university, but making those opportunities more available to undergraduates. And it's wonderful how that change can take place with a commitment of just a few professors and leaders uh, and influence an entire school that way. It's great to hear. It is indeed. It was, uh, it was a really fresh and interesting and lively time for me, and I was, I was uh, really pleased to have a chance to do that with my colleagues. You served as president of Lafayette College from 2005 to 13, during which time you spearheaded the Urban Arts Initiative within the city of Easton. The college was recognized as the only one in the nation to receive a collaborative grant from the National Endowment for the Arts for that partnership. Tell us about the idea behind the Urban Arts Initiative and how you put your plan into action. Sure. So, so the connection between Lafayette and the city of Easton is a very fundamental, long-standing one, and there's a great deal of mutual uh, dependency. And so from the time I arrived at Lafayette, it was clear to me that a strong relationship with the city grounded on some shared interests and a commitment to a, a unified vision of what the city and the college could do together would be really important to everyone's long-term well-being. And so out of that observation came a series of discussions with the city and our own strategic planning process at the college that included the well-being of the city at the very center of our own planning process. And as we thought about how can we partner with the city, I should add that, that Lafayette is the largest employer in the city of Easton, which is a post-industrial town of about 24,000 people. So there were, there were real re economic and financial reasons why Lafayette wanted to be an important partner to the city as well. 
we, as, so as we thought about our planning and as we thought about how we could work together, we identified various ways in which we could support Easton's ambition to be an arts and cultural city. Easton is a little over an hour from New York City. The cost of living is quite manageable. So there are lots of reasons why art and culture were seen to be very positive things for the city to be focusing on. And we began to put in place various initiatives together. And in the midst of that thinking, then, Rocco Landisman, who became head of the National Endowment for the Arts, had as his first initiative in that role what he called the Urban Arts Initiative. And it was to provide funding to urban centers to help revitalize the financial and economic core of a city through the use of art. And in Easton, we decided to, to apply for one of those grants in partnership with the city because we had this very strong foundation. And so we did, and we were the only higher education institution to win along with, uh, in partnership with the city. That's really how it came about. It was an organic development out of a substantive series of shared strategic objectives. And has that program taken off across the country? Are, have people uh, and organizations um, bought into this model, which seems like such a natural way to proceed? Well, I think that the, the particular initiative that Rocco Landisman had implemented, this was a few years ago, was very successful. I think they gave grants to something like two dozen cities to develop public art projects that were, again, tied to the development of the urban centers. And so those were very ex successful in terms of, of the grants that were given. But over the long term, I don't really know what became of that. I know what happened in Easton, but I'm not sure where those projects are now today. Uh, I think generally it's it's acknowledged in most cities that the arts and, and cultural presence can help to revitalize cities that are a bit downtrodden or in need of, of uh, shaping a new identity. The arts are, can, are usually at the center of those discussions. Sure. And in your experience, uh, are, uh, are colleges generally uh, engaged as they could be within the surrounding communities? It varies a great deal. It always surprised me as an academic leader that those issues weren't more for in the forefront of the thinking of the college or university. Because after all, unlike many other kinds of organizations, colleges and universities typically stay where they are for centuries. Yeah. And so if the community in the surrounding area is not thriving, the consequences to the college are long-term and significant. Yet, in my experience, there are some institutions that don't pay that much attention to those issues, or they decide to deploy their resources in other ways. Dan, what informed your decision to attend Yale School of Management to earn your MBA? Well, I was at the time considering, actively considering careers in nonprofit organizations as, a, as an administrator. I had, by that time, worked at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, having some business experience there. And then I had gotten a master's degree in art history at Johns Hopkins. And I thought maybe a career, actually I was thinking actively about museums as a place where I might combine my interest in cultural issues with my interest in administration. And the Yale School of Management had focused, and it still does, uh, more broadly than some business schools do on, on management and the skills that are transferable across sectors, from the nonprofit to the public to the private sectors. And I was very drawn to that as a, as a general management experience that would be helpful to me. And it was a great experience. I enjoyed it enormously. Hmm. And what a did you take away from your experiences entrenched in the business world, first in the business school and then as a consultant for four years with Booz Allen and Hamilton? Well, I learned quite a lot, first, first of all, about simply the, 
the basic substance of business operations. I learned about the kind of fundamentals of effective management. I learned about financial oversight and how to read a balance sheet and an operating statement. I learned about strategic planning and how one can use applied math to make thoughtful decisions around business operations. So I learned lots of the nuts and bolts, the foundational knowledge that is needed for any organization to be effective. Beyond that, I learned some valuable lessons that have served me well ever since. Maybe one of the most compelling is that effective communication, good writing, thoughtful presentations, clarity of expression are essential to any kind of management job and maybe especially to be a management consultant. Because if you can't get your arguments across clearly in ways that people are willing to engage with, it's very difficult for them to want to support what you're proposing particularly if you're making difficult recommendations. So when I was at Booz Allen, we spent rather a lot of time at the management consulting firm thinking carefully about how to, how to give good presentations, how to communicate clearly, because if our clients weren't willing to support us in those recommendations, we were unlikely to be able to be successful. So I learned all of those things in my, my years at both the Booz Allen and at Yale. And in general, what's your... Um uh, your assessment of the the students' abilities to communicate, uh, both when they're uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate students, and when they get out into the world. Um, so often, it seems that um, good writing skills and communication are are relegated to second, third, fourth place. I agree. I, I find it very disappointing that that students very often don't recognize how important these skills are in life and in school. And so they tend to be writing less so than, than oral communication, but they tend to be less seriously pursued than they should. Most colleges, certainly the ones I've been f associated with, and particularly small colleges like Haverford, place a very high premium on written communication, helping students learn how to write effectively in various contexts. And that's a hugely valuable thing. So I think the writing issue is a national problem. Most people recognize that students don't come out of high school with the basic writing skills that they really probably should have, but that serious students in college have ample opportunities to address them. Oral communication is, I think, a different matter. I'm always struck by the fact that young people especially, but lots of people, take so much time and attention in their appearance. They're so careful to, rem to be fit and healthy and to dress well and to look good and to have a nice haircut. Yet they think not at all about how they sound when they speak. And they may have fall into verbal tics where they use the word like three or four times in every sentence. And they don't recognize how diminishing that is of their presentation, especially in a business setting. And so I often try to talk to students about that and remind them of that. But it is something that is neglected, I think, across the board. Yeah. And in a broader sense, uh, what did each of your three posts at three different academic institutions, uh, Johns Hopkins University, Lafayette College, and Haverford College, teach you about recurring issues in academia, in higher education? Well, I think the enterprise of, of thoughtful teaching and, and substantive research in any college or university tends to be fairly similar. The specific issues may vary from one institution to another, but I certainly learned certain basic principles about effective teaching or productive research or how to engage in a, in a thoughtful and meaningful way with my colleagues at Johns Hopkins, Haverford, or Lafayette. And so I would say the, the, uh, the different 
kinds of cultures that I encountered in these places were less meaningful than the central kinds of shared objectives that we have doing this kind of work. And did your mission as a leader change from school to school, uh, or do you find that they overlapped? Well, my role has changed a little bit. I would say, as a small college president, which I've done now at Lafayette and at Haverford, that job is in some ways quite similar, though the cultures are different and the specific issues that we face are different. But the job isn't that different. So I felt that when I arrived at Haverford, I had a pretty good sense for generally what's required to be a college president. When I went from being dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins to being a small college president, I actually wasn't fully prepared for how different those jobs were. I thought that I had it figured out pretty well, but the first year or two at Lafayette I was doing quite a lot of learning about new things that I hadn't anticipated, which was fun. It was interesting. Yeah, and I was going to say uh, people can look at that in one of two ways. It can, in fact, be exciting and fun or it can be intimidating and, uh, and sometimes depressing. So, uh, so is that part of your personality, or are there things that, that, uh, that you can suggest one, one does under those circumstances to, in fact, make it fun and exciting? Uh, well, sure. I, I guess one of the lessons that I learned, particularly at Booz Allen as a management consultant, is that there are certain basic skills that will help you to be successful in an administrative or leadership setting that are absolutely transferable, whether you work at General Electric or Yale University. And those skills I developed, or at least I began to develop when I was doing management consulting work. And then each place I've been since, each of them has their own challenges, each of them has their own substantive issues that have to be mastered. There is a way forward if you learn those basic skills. So for me that includes learning how to, to listen really thoughtfully, to listen very carefully to what other people have to say, and not just wait for them to pause so that you can say whatever it is you want to say. Very often, the knowledge that one needs to have to be successful in leading an organization resides with the people all around you. And if you can simply learn to listen carefully to what they have to say and to discern the best ideas and to think critically around those ideas, you very quickly can master what the culture is and what the issues are, but also identify good solutions. So thoughtful listening in a kind of sometimes described as athletic listening where you're really actively engaged in, in taking in what you're hearing, that's a very important skill. Helping to focus on where, where the talent resides around you in an organization is another skill that I think is very important. Who are the people can, that can most help the organization be successful? And are you giving them opportunities to develop professionally and to cultivate their own skills and their own leadership aspirations. And if you can do that well, then there's great leverage in helping an institution to be stronger, whatever the issues are, whether they're at a Johns Hopkins, a Lafayette, a General Electric, it doesn't matter. And so I've learned some of those lessons early on, and I've tried to practice them wherever I've been. Yeah, and tying into that, you co-hosted a conference called The Future of Liberal Arts College in America, with Rebecca Chop in 2012 to spark a dialogue about changing fundamentals in liberal arts academia. Uh, Johns Hopkins University Press later published the book you co-edited with Rebecca, Remaking College, Innovation in the Liberal Arts. Share with us the major points of both the conference and the book, if you will. Sure. Well, so that whole activity, that whole process came out of my, my thought that 
we're entering into a very difficult and challenging phase in higher education. This was just following the economic downturn of 2008. And all of us at, at at our colleges and universities were thinking about similar sets of issues. And so the question was, what kind of shared learning is there if we can bring together people who are involved in leading institutions facing similar kinds of issues, but who have their own approaches and their own specific contexts? Can there be valuable shared learning? So I reached out to Rebecca Chop, who was then president of Swarthmore and a good friend, and we'd started on this idea of organizing such a conference but the idea was to invite people who are actively leading institutions at the time. We weren't interested as much in hearing what critics or, or scholars had to say about higher education, interesting though that is. We wanted to hear what decision makers had to say. What are you going to do tomorrow about balancing the budget? How do you think about investing in technology? What are you doing about that right now? So all of the people we invited, save one or two, were, were sitting presidents. And we brought them together at Lafayette to have several days of this kind of discussion. And it was enormously valuable. The quality of interaction was very high. We chose people that we knew would be interesting and thoughtful. And out of that came a great deal of enthusiasm for putting these ideas in a more formal context. And so we, we spoke with the, uh, the editor, the, uh, the publishers at Johns Hopkins and asked them if they'd like to do the volume, which they did. And so we, it turned out to be a really valuable experience for everybody involved. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Dan Weiss, former president of Haverford College and president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And when we're confronted with things like the, uh, the Great Recession, uh, administrators can go in one of two ways. They can often retrench, uh, cut budgets uh, uniformly, or they can try to stabilize things, look ahead, and continue the investment in the future. How would you address that particular aspect and those possibilities when confronted with something like a recession? Well, we were confronted with, with a very substantial recession. And so I think one of the things that came out of the 2008-09 experience was this was not any ordinary recession. That this was the most significant economic downturn in the United States in more than five decades and in higher education probably longer than that. So there, one might think of what we did about it or how we think about what to do over a series of, of phases. The first phase was what do we have to do right now to balance our budgets and to make sure we can meet payroll because who knew it? In, in the middle of 2008-09 the capital markets were, were collapsing and it wasn't clear what was happening to our endowments or whether we'd actually have the money we needed to cover our operating costs. So the first phase for most institutions was across the board cuts. 
how do we lower the overall operating cost of the institution to be sustainable? Once we got past that phase, which most institutions did in the first two years or so, then the question was, what is the new normal going to look like? What will higher education be like following this downturn? And we have seen very significant, and I think they are sustainable changes in higher ed. And most institutions are now adapting to them by being far more strategic in how we think about allocating resources, how we think about setting tuition rates, and how we view the future for our individual institutions. And all of that, I think, has been happening over the last five or six years. It's been actually quite interesting, if not a little bit challenging. And your experiences, obviously, in academia uh, and in business will no doubt set you up extremely well uh, for your role at the Met in New York. Had you ever envisioned yourself in a leadership role at a major museum? Uh, you mentioned, you know, it might have been something that you thought about, but like, had, had you ever considered it to be a serious option for you? Well, I thought off and on about it over the years. Really, my, my first thought was when I began my career that maybe I would like to work in a museum. And so when I was in graduate school at Yale, I did an independent study on museum leadership. I wanted to understand more what these jobs were like, what kind of issues are people facing, and is this a good fit for me as I think about my own career. So I went around the country. This was in 1984 or 5. I went around the country meeting with museum leaders, directors, presidents, and others, asking them about, about their work and what kind of, of rewards they, they saw in their work and what kind of challenges. And I came away from that quite intrigued by the idea of working in museums, but then my career went in a different direction. Over the years, I've been involved in museums. I, was, uh, I curated an exhibition at the Walters Art Museum when I was a faculty member at Johns Hopkins. I wrote an exhibition catalog as well, and then I served on the board of the Walters Art Museum for many years. So I have had lots of interaction in museums, but this was my first opportunity to work in a museum. So I have to say, on the one hand, I've been circling around this kind of work, this job, for a very long time, even though it's my first job inside a museum. It's quite a first job inside a museum, isn't it? It is. I'm, uh, I'm enormously fortunate to be, to be getting a chance to do this. Yes. And, and what aspects of your predecessor, Emily Kernan Rafferty's vision for the museum, do you intend to continue? And what, what changes do you envision making to the museum's model? Well, Emily has, enormous, has done an enormously positive job at the Met. She's been there for, in one form or another, I think over 39 years. It may even be 40, the last 10 of which she served as president. Emily's work was focused really on sustaining a strategic vision for the museum to be increasingly outward looking, to be engaging with the public. She was an exceptionally successful fundraiser, enormously. She came out of fundraising. That was her first work at the Met. And so her presidency was focused very much on those kind of externally focused objectives. And I think the Met is doing really well in those areas. The Met is doing really well in every area. But the, my focus will be a little bit different. And, of course, with each new president comes a new set of, of uh, objectives. So I want to build on the success that Emily has had and to turn our attention as well to focusing a little bit more acutely on our strategic planning work and making sure that we're driving very hard towards a vision for the future that is deliberate each year. We will be focusing on, on financial oversight and making sure that we can continue to operate at the very highest level over the next several years. And beyond that, we have some very significant strategic initiatives that extend in important ways the work of the museum. 
that have to be done well, they have to be financially sustainable, and they have to be operated at the highest level of professional accomplishment. I think I mentioned two very briefly. One is the uh, there's a major renovation of the southwest wing of the museum that is now underway. This will be one of the most, most significant renovations of the museum, certainly in the last several decades. And that work has to be done well. So the, I'll be directly involved in that. The other is we're taking over the old Whitney Museum on Madison Avenue, the Breuer Building, and turning it into a Metropolitan Museum of Art Center. And so we'll have another satellite facility like the Cloisters is, this one on Madison Avenue. And we want to make sure we do that very well. We open the doors next March. So I'll be very involved in those two specific projects in addition to everything else. And uh, what's your assessment of the museum's relationship with the uh, city of New York itself? Has, has it been a supportive, collaborative partnership? It, I, it certainly has. The Met is a singular institution in the sense that it is a global institution of absolutely uh, distinguished collections of art with a, a virtually unique kind of presence in the world. There are very few museums that have the kind of influence that the Met has. So it is a global institution, but it also is a city museum. The, the Met was created by the leaders of the city of New York, and it has been supported actively and financially by the city of New York since it was founded in 1870. And so that's kind of a remarkable history. There is a very strong partnership between the museum and the city. One of the areas that I will be spending a lot of time on is getting to know the, that more about that partnership and working with the leaders of the city to make sure that we're accomplishing the objectives that we set together for the museum. And I think there's always more that we can do to support the city, but the museum is already a, a, obviously a very important and vital part of the cultural landscape of New York. Yeah, and what are some of the current challenges that the museum's facing? Well, I think uh, cultural institutions in general are always struggling for the opportunity to have a presence in the life of the communities around us. We want the museum to be, on the one hand, the Met is, is seen to be an extraordinarily large, complex, rich, comprehensive art museum. And it operates at a very high level in terms of scholarly and, uh, and professional opportunities. But at the same time, there is there is a need to make sure that the museum is accessible to everyone. So one of the challenges that we, are, that we want to face is how do we make sure that everyone who has an interest in art feels welcome at the Met? Those, those magnificent stairs at the front of the building can be daunting to some people who haven't been to the museum before. We want to make sure that people feel welcome to come in and that the Met can help to enrich their lives in all kinds of ways, even if they don't have significant backgrounds or any background in art history. And so making the Met a community resource for everyone, for school children, for people who don't typically go to museums, opening up our audiences is a big part of what we want to try to do. And you mentioned school children. In your experience, are, are school children uh, in grade school and high school, are they, are they generally uh, exposed to art in a way that stimulates their own passions? Uh, or is it more forced on them? Or is it more academic? What, what's your sense of how young students can be engaged, more actively engaged in the museum? Well, as many of us may recall from our own childhood, going to an art museum can be, for some students, an extraordinarily exciting and fun experience, and for others it can be very dreary. And 
I think that's inevitable, that young people are all different and they don't know if they like it or not until they've experienced it. So our goal is to give all students an opportunity to see a museum on its very best foot, footing for them, which is to say that we want to develop programs and tours that allow students to see art in ways that makes it interesting to them, even if they're not particularly prepared for that. That is to say, it's a new experience. So I think, I think it varies a great deal. There are some students who come out of that experience and, and believe that it was a life-changing one for them, even if they were only in, in middle school or grade school. And there are others who never want to step foot in there again. The best we can do is make sure that we're connecting them with art that will resonate with them, given their age and their experience level. I remember very well in my own experience as a beginning graduate student in art history. I was taking a seminar that met at the National Gallery of Art once a week. And one of the very first classes we had, we stood for three hours in front of one painting, a portrait, a Venetian portrait by Bellini, for three hours. And most people would not have been able to survive that. That's a long time to stand in front of one picture. But it worked for us because we were ready for that kind of deep engagement in one picture. We would not do that for a group of middle school kids. We would take them in front of many pictures and help them to see these images in ways that might excite their curiosity. Sure. And in talking about the very best footing, uh, technology obviously plays a big part in that. And in both academia and the engagement of visitors in museums and other cultural institutions, uh, technology is not only making significant waves, but it points up the need for flexibility uh, among those uh, institutions. So how does one reconcile integrating years of history at these places with the constant evolution of technology? Well, there's a great paradox in that. On the one hand, the museum's fundamental objective is to connect people in transformational ways to works of art, front and center. That is to say, there's no substitute for coming to a museum and standing in front of a work of art and having a special experience with that object right in front of you. On the other hand, technology provides access to people around the world to works of art and to knowledge that is an enormously valuable tool. So at the Met, as at most art museums around, around the world, we're investing in new technologies, digital media technologies, that allow people to connect with art in interesting and stimulating ways that should complement their experience of the museum itself that should heighten their curiosity, enrich their understanding, so that when they walk into the building and they see the works of art themselves, they'll have a heightened appreciation for them. While at the same time acknowledging that many of the people who come to our website of the 40 million a year that do, may not ever have the opportunity to come to the buildings of the Met. They may only ever see them via the, the internet or through our website. And so we want to make sure that the quality of that presentation and the richness of what's available will, will be worth their time and effort. And I think technology is moving so quickly, both in terms of the quality of what we can present and the interesting ways in which we can format it and make it accessible, that we're able to accomplish those two goals in ways that are increasingly complementary. And it would seem that technology companies would be eager to work with organizations like the Met, and they can then in turn share those experiences with smaller institutions who may not be able to afford the things that the Met can. Yes, I think that's right. The Met is on, in many areas, and certainly in technology, identifies itself as an institution that should be a leader. Because the size and scale of our operation and the size of our budgets, 
there is the opportunity to lead, to develop new approaches and innovative new ways of connecting people to art. And then those best practices can help be shared by other institutions that may be more resource constrained. That is a responsibility that the Met has always felt that it should be a leader. And um, thinking back in each of your own career directions, it seems like um, your life has set you up so ideally for what you're about to assume. So uh, just kind of stepping back, Dan, what advice do you have for young professionals who may have found their passion but are unsure of the proper path to follow to achieve uh, their goals, whatever they may happen to be? Well, I think about these issues a lot, primarily because as a member of an academic community, I'm advising students very frequently. I think the best lesson that I can give is that very often, most of the time, the career that you're likely to have is not one that you anticipate, that life is full of surprises. And in fact, it is the journey, not the destination, that matters the most. So if you can identify those things that are most important to you, to find a passion that really interests you, and throw yourself into doing that work and doing it well, then the opportunities that will come out of that, one after another, will almost certainly lead to a path that is rewarding and full of very interesting opportunities. That was certainly the case for me, but I never would have contemplated how one particular position led to another. What I did do was try to maintain close contact with what's important to me, and I did the best I can at each step to do those things well. And as I did those things, my learning evolved, so my, my own sense of what was interesting and important has changed. But I've also, so I've grown, and I've also then had opportunities that I did not anticipate. And I think that's really what a, a successful and productive career looks like. That journey from, uh, from one moment to the next, that in retrospect, seems so obviously connected, but not necessarily from the vantage point of your departure. And to keep an open mind all throughout the process. Yes, exactly right. That the world will present to you all kinds of interesting opportunities that that if you're open to them, they can enrich your life in, in myriad ways. And if you're not, you won't even know they passed you by. Hmm. Wonderful to hear. Well, the best way to reach Dan and to find out more about his work is to click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Dan, we're very grateful for your work over the years and wish you all the best at the Met. Well, thank you very much, Robert. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.